Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In our last program, we were uh, developing the point after having described who the different groups of people were or are and will be, uh, referring to the Israelites in the Millennial Kingdom, these groups of people, including you and me, including that's the church, we are called sons of God. And the reason we're called sons of God is because we are direct creations of God. And for us, we're talking about spiritually. For Luke, or excuse me, in Luke, we learn that Adam was a direct, and of course that was a physical creation, therefore he's called a son of God. The angels were a direct physical creation by God, therefore they are called sons of God. Then we learned in Romans and in 2 Corinthians, Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5, that the church is referred to as sons of God because we are new creations. Currently, we are new creations because of our spiritual nature. The fact that the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you take the Holy Spirit on. God gives you, God gives you his Holy Spirit. And of course, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians tells us, no one knows God like his spirit. And yet he gives his spirit to us. I mean, that's a, that's a magnificent thing to think about as a Christian. The fact that you are a son or daughter of the living God because his Holy Spirit dwells within you. And then at the moment that the church is raptured and we stand before Christ at the Bema seat, we then are made totally complete. We are then a total creation of God when we are not only spiritually sons of God, but we will be physically sons of God because we will take on our immortal, imperishable body, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 by Paul when he describes the rapture. So we are... Uh, currently sons of God. And then we, we talked about when the Israelites, the righteous Israelites that passed the judgment of Jesus at the second coming, that uh, third of the living Israelites that make it through that judgment, they are referred to as the sons of God. And we learned that from the Old Testament book of Hosea chapter 1 where it talks about that. And then in Hosea chapter 3, where it talks about the fact that it reiterates or corroborates and, and verifies what we learned in Hosea 1, that it is Israel, it is yet future, and when Jesus comes back, they will recognize him and he will give them David to rule over them again. So again, another verification, a corroboration of what we learned in Ezekiel and other places where it says clearly that uh, God will give them David as their king over Israel. And you think how miraculous that is. Well, we're also told in Matthew 19 that the 12 apostles at the time of Christ 
And of course, one of those apostles was appointed to replace Judas uh, in Acts uh, chapter 1. So there's 12 apostles, and it says in Matthew 19 that those 12 apostles will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. So they are com- they are brought back as we are. We, we come back with Jesus. So that it's not a, it's not a um, stretch to understand why these men would come back. Uh, so they come back to rule over the 12 tribes, we're told in Matthew 19. And then David is brought back, and he lived 1,000 years before the apostles. So 3,000 years ago from us, he's brought back to be the king over Israel. And then, of course, Jesus is sitting in bodily form in the fourth or millennial temple in Jerusalem, um, above, physically above, as well as everything else (laughs) above, uh, David and the Israelites. He's sitting above everyone in the temple, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords over the entire earth. So uh, I want to point that out because there are some uh, denominations that uh, believe that uh, David can't come back, that any reference to David has to be Jesus. Well, the Bible makes it quite clear in a number of books, and these are books that are written, albeit through the leading of the Holy Spirit in each and every case, but by men who lived hundreds of years apart from each other. Couldn't possibly have known each other, couldn't have shared their notes, as they say, which of course is not true because everything is inspired by God through the leading of the Holy Spirit and is therefore the Word of God and not anything that man made up. So I believe the Bible's very clear that uh, in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus comes back to set up that kingdom, that the 12 apostles will rule over Israel, that David will be the king over Israel, and that the church uh, is told that we will rule and reign over the earth with Christ Um, over cities and over municipalities and over different government functions. That's going to be the role of the church during the millennial kingdom. So, yes, we do go to heaven for a short time. But, uh, dear listener, I hate to break it to you, but we are not going to be sitting on clouds, fluffy clouds, wearing our Depend diapers, strumming a harp in heaven. That's something that man has made up. It has nothing to do with describing the church. We're going to be in heaven for a short period of time, perhaps a little over seven years, and then we come back to the earth. And uh, while heaven is our home, we will have our jobs here on the earth uh, in our glorified eternal bodies, ruling and reigning with Christ. So uh, that's just the miraculous, uh, to us anyway, from an earthly perspective, almost unbelievable, miraculous thing promises that God has for those who know him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So uh, that should get you excited. (laughs) So we are going to continue on. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in our last program, and again, I am uh, using scriptures that are listed in our worksheet, and you can find our worksheet at the radio station here at whcbradio.org. Look for Exploring Bible Prophecy, and you'll find the hot link to the um, worksheet that you can download and follow along with us. We were in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we looked at verses 9 and 10, and we were using that to make a point that even back uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses 1,400 years before Christ, uh, making the point that in Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, God is a covenant-keeping, 
um, long-suffering, loving, kind God to eternity. It says to a thousandth generation, which in effect would be 30,000 years, if you think 30, 30 years to a generation. That's a way of saying forever, for eternity. That to those who love him, and that's the key, God is an amazing God of, of rewards and blessings and mercy and love to those who love him, and they cannot love him except through his son. So the automatic assumption here is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. But then we went to Deuteronomy 7, verse 10, immediately following 9, and it says, but to those who hate God, and if you hate God, then you hate his son, and you'll then see Jesus as the son of a man. That's all he is. Some uh, figure uh, of history that existed most likely, don't know for sure, you know, but I think he existed, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, but he was just a man that came on the scene like anybody else. That's the way they see him. And those are those people are addressed in Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. God says, I hate you, and I will punish you to your face. I will destroy you, and I will do it directly. And that is what the Son of Man, those who refuse to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, that's how the Son of Man is going to function when he comes back. So that is kind of setting the stage for the distinction. Verse 9 in Deuteronomy 7 is a type and shadow, if you will, of the Son of God. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 10 is a type and shadow of the Son of Man because Jesus is God. So when Jesus comes to this earth, that's how he's going to be uh, he's going to be differentiated by function. He's going to glorify, he's going to bless and reward as the son of God. He's going to punish and destroy as the son of man. So we wanted to build on that a little bit more about why Jesus and why doesn't God just do this all by himself? Why does Jesus have to come on the scene? So that uh, is developed, I believe, in Exodus. So if you go and turn to the front of your Bible, to the far left, and go to the second book, you got Genesis, then the next book is Exodus. And we want to go to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, if you're somewhat familiar with the five books of Moses, you probably know that if you're looking for the Ten Commandments, you want to go to Exodus 20, because that's one of the gifts that God gave his wife. And you say, well, who is the wife of God? Israel is the wife of God. And God married Israel in a wedding ceremony described in Exodus 19, the chapter just prior to where we're in today. In Exodus 19, God came down on Mount Sinai and basically said, if you do this, and and they went through wedding vows, If you do this, I'll do this. And Israel replied back, we will. And as a matter of fact, the description in Exodus 19 of the wedding uh, is uh, visualized, if you will, in the layout of a Jewish wedding today. When you see a Jewish wedding of, uh, of observant Jews, I guess I should say, those that are observant Jews, they replicate the description in Exodus 19 of the wedding between God and Israel. 
and the the canopy that they walk under is a representation of walking up to Mount Sinai because the the Hebrew actually says they walked up under Mount Sinai. Um, so that's a, a, a picture, if you will, of a Jewish wedding copied from the wedding of God to Israel. And during that ceremony, God th- thundered uh, very loudly and very audibly from Mount Sinai, and it scared the living daylights out of the Israelites. So that's why we want to go to Exodus chapter 20, and we want to see the genesis, if you will, the, the beginning reason for why Jesus had to come to the earth. So we go to Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, and let's go to verse 19, and you see this in our worksheet uh, available from this radio station. And in verse 19 of Exodus 20, it says, these are the Israelites talking. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him, the fear of God, may remain with you so that you may not sin. So he has instilled a fear in Israel in his coming down to Mount Sinai and Uh, if you will, speaking through the thunder and the lightning and the clouds and the smoke and everything, that that you can read in the passages here, it scared the living daylights out of Israel. So they pleaded with Moses, Moses, you speak to us. You go up on the mountain. You talk to God. You get all the details, of course, the Ten Commandments and so forth. You bring that back down and you talk to us. We are afraid to death of hearing directly from God. So at that point, a a conduit, a messenger, if you will, an intermediary, uh, is the, the concept is being developed here. And that first intermediary, if you will, is Moses. So Moses, you speak to us so that we will not die. And then he says again in verse 20, do not be afraid for God is testing you. And of course, we remember from the book of James in the New Testament, uh, written by the half uh, brother of Jesus, that God tests you. And of course, testing makes you stronger. And it very clearly says in James that Satan tempts. God never tempts you. He says, God only tests you to make you stronger. Satan tempts, and of course, temptation is to draw you away from something, to make you weaker, to take you away from the source of strength. So that's what Satan does. That's his whole makeup. But God is there to test you. And they make the point about the fear of him, the fear of God, and how important that is so that you may not sin. So I wanted to, as you see in your handout here, I want to go from uh, Exodus 20 to Proverbs chapter 9. So we're staying in the Old Testament, and we're going through a good quarter of the Bible there, perhaps, past the major uh, book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms, and go into Proverbs, and go to Proverbs chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 9, and look at verse 10. 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And as we get to verse 10 of Proverbs 9, I want to remind you of what we just read. He says that that we want to instill in you, Israel, the fear of God so that you may not sin. Well, we know that Jesus came so that we would understand the law came so that we would know what sin is. And then Jesus came so that we didn't need the law, that it was all through his blood that we're saved from our sins. Well, how do we know that? We know that from studying the word. So look at what Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us. The fear of the Lord, just what we read back there in Exodus chapter 20. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So do you see these these three key words that are built off of the fear of the Lord? We have knowledge, and when you gain knowledge, if you study that knowledge, you then get understanding, and if you have that understanding and you apply it, you then you do that through wisdom. So it's building blocks, knowledge, then understanding, then wisdom. That all comes and cannot come any other way. It comes from a fear of God. And again, we need to understand that that word fear is not a fear that comes from a a belief that you're going to be punished if you don't act properly, although an unbeliever would. But for a Christian, it means reverential awe. You recognize who God is. You have a reverential awe of who he is. And if you remember the description just a few moments ago of how the Israelites reacted to God coming down at Mount Sinai there in Exodus 19, it scared the daylights out of them, so much so that they said, if we hear from God again, we'll die. Moses, you talk to us. You be the representative of God to us. And it came from a fear of God. And from there is where we get understand uh, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom that can only come from God through the Holy Spirit. So that that's, a, 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 to me, a foundational teaching of the Bible, that none of this is really of any eternal value to a person unless they have the fear of God that makes them want to know him. To reverentially awe someone means I, need, I, know, I know who he is, what he's about, what his character is, and what he wants from me. And what God wants from us is laid out in the Bible. So we can't, uh, we can't say, we can't um, declare ignorance uh, at any point uh, if we know God as our, our Father and Jesus Christ as our Savior. So we have the establishment of the point that God uh, is not going to speak directly to the people, that he's going to speak through a representative at the request of the people. And God respects that request. And we're going to see that um, next time in Deuteronomy. So if you want to look ahead, um, if you have the worksheet, you can see it there. But I'll go ahead and tell you it's Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 17. And we're going to establish why uh, or how Jesus Christ was prophesied as the one who needed to come to the earth to be the intermediary, to be the conduit, to be the representative 
uh, of, of God here on the earth, and he does that as the Son of God. So we'll do that in our next program. But let's now transition to our question and answer time and continue on with our question from our uh, listener in Abington that has to do with the, the uh, book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 14, is what uh, the listener in Abington gave us. And he said, where is Israel taken to hide from Satan? And, of course, Revelation 12 talks about the, the second half of tribulation. And very quickly, it's the second half of tribulation because in the first half, da- uh, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 9.27 tells us that Israel is protected from all of the wrath, all of the death and destruction that takes place in the first half, uh, as we read in Revelation 6, verse 8, and in Revelation 9, verse 15. Half the world dies in the first half of the tribulation. Israel, though, is protected from that. Therefore, it's the second half that God uh, miraculously um, rescues and protects Israel for the second, the full second half. And the reason for that is because Satan has been thrown out of heaven at the midpoint, uh, at the midpoint of the seven years, and has indwelled the Antichrist. The Antichrist has broken the peace covenant that protected Israel for the first three and a half years, and is now going to spend the second three and a half years trying to totally annihilate Israel. And the reason he wants to annihilate Israel is that if he can annihilate them, then Satan will continue to rule over the earth because Jesus will not come back. And we know that from Matthew 23, verse 39, where he says, you will not see me again, and he's talking to Israel, nobody else. He's talking to Israel. You will not see me again unless you say. So it's not a belief. He didn't say if you just believe in your heart. He says, if you say with your mouth, if you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's another thing that tells us it's not the church, it's Israel, because it's something they have to say. And of course, we know from the Bible that they will say it, and he will come back, and praise uh, praise God for that. Looking forward to it, because we're coming back with Jesus as his wife, having been married to him uh, at least seven years before. Uh, at the rapture of the church and the Bema seat judgment, and then subsequently the wedding. So then we went on and and, uh, basically went along with what a lot of the theologians are speculating today, that this place would be Petra. It's a place that uh, I've had the privilege with my wife and family of visiting, and my wife and I have been there a couple of times, and it's a magnificent place literally carved out of the rocks. Uh, and the cliffs there in Jordan to the south and east of Jerusalem. And we finished our program last time in the book of Psalms, so let's go to Psalms again. Uh, We were in uh, Exodus in our teaching portion today, so we're not too far from Psalms, so just take a chunk out of your Bible to the right and get into um, uh, the book of Psalms. It should be fairly easy to find. It's a big book, and we were in Psalm 18, Psalm 18 and verses 1 through 3. So let's go ahead and review real quickly with that one. We have several passages in Psalm, book of Psalms we want to look at. And it says in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress 
and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So it's interesting, having read just that one, and we'll read several more here, uh, but to make the point that uh, Petra is in biblical Edom. Remember, Edom was a uh, people group and an area that existed to the south of the Dead Sea and to the east. Uh, The people group right above them were the um, Moabites, and right above the Moabites were the Ammonites. And these were all warring people groups against Israel. And Edom, of course, um, was from um, Jacob's brother Esau. So that's where Petra is today. And a biblical name for that area is Selah, S-E-L-A-H. And it's interesting, when you look at the Hebrew for that, it means cliff or rock, and it also means a stronghold or a fortress. And sure enough, if you look at Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2 there, you see those exact words referring to God. So God uh, will, we know from the Bible that God will miraculously take these remnant of righteous Israelites who Satan is going to, through the Antichrist, is going to persecute and try to destroy. In fact, as they leave Jerusalem and the area around there and start heading down to Petra, we learn from a reading of uh, Revelation 12, uh, starting around verse 13 down to 17, that Satan actually figuratively and literally chases after them and tries to drown them, tries to drown them on the way, and God miraculously saves them from that, uh, sets them up in the area of Petra, and protects them uh, as only God can do from the wrath of the Antichrist indwelled by Satan for those three and a half years. And then we also pointed out in our last program that the Jordanians, because they see all the Christian tourists uh, coming to Petra, they've been building up Petra dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years, building more and more hotels and restaurants and shops, and in effect, preparing the place for Israel uh, and its protection during the second half of the tribulation. You know, we moving on, we have a precedent for this happening and the Israelites escaping to a particular place on the other side of the Jordan from Israel. And that happened 2,000 years before, and that happened around the time of Christ. And Christ, uh, we learn this from the historian Josephus, who lived around that time uh, of Christ and the up, up to and including the destruction of Israel, when uh, Jesus had told them, uh, for instance, in Luke, to when you see the, the armies showing up, these Roman armies showing up, escape, get out of town as quick as you can. The same type of verbiage used for the tribulation period with the Israelites. Only these are the Christians that were in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And they quickly got up and they flew, they fleed across the Jordan and went north to another Jordanian town called Pella. And we have the historical as well as the biblical evidence for that having taken place uh, 2,000 years ago as they escaped from the onslaught of the Romans when they destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. 
Okay, in our next program, we're going to attempt to finish up answering this program. I know we've been kind of long, but there's been a lot of information to share, and uh, we'll we'll finish up answering this uh, in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.